Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Actung, actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Uh, we are delighted to be joined by a a very special guest today. James, who are we talking to today? We have got Dave Roberts from the Western Approaches Museum up in Liverpool. And um, Oh no, no, we're not doing that, James. We are not doing we're not doing like kind of Well, I can't do a Macro impersonation. No, you're absolutely that is strengths and verboten. No, that is simply not allowed. We're not allowed to <laughs> I'm not, you know, we're not allowed to touch it, mate. Anyway, sorry, okay. sorry. From now on, on, from now on. Yeah, no from more. here on. Liverpool. You don't have to do the Liverpool. Just, that, that, thank you. Right. Okay. C- continue. <laughs> so we are. Um, yeah. So the Western Approaches Museum in Liverpool, um, and Dave Roberts is one of the head honchos there, and it's a very significant museum because this place was opened um, as a control operations room for the Western Approaches Command eighty years ago, on the day that this podcast is being released, the seventeenth of February. 
1941. Wow. So that's very exciting. And, you know, we all, we say, don't we, over and over and over again, we don't do enough about the role of the navies in the Second World War. And we don't do enough yep. on the Atlantic. And yet, by the same breath, we're also saying, well, of course, Battle of the Atlantic is the most important theatre in the Second World War, bar none. So we're trying to rectify that, really. And Dave's yes, going to help so, us. So welcome, Dave. Um, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, to the... the Obviously, we're doing this on Zoom, so uh, I just want to let the listeners know that Dave has brought an extremely strong battle dress game. <laughs> to, I mean, obviously, he's recording this like everyone in a cupboard. Yes, but this is a cupboard. This is a cupboard. Um, what, what are the uniforms to your, to your left? What we've we got there? We've got a Royal Navy with parachute wings on. Yeah, uh, 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 this one is quite special. They're all most of them are, are replicas and reproductions, but this one's quite special in that it's um, thirty assault unit. Um, Ah, so it's the nature. Yes. So you can just see the thirty. Yeah. For those of us on Zoom now, you can just see the thirty underneath the para wings, yeah. and then a, a Marines thirty AU behind it. Um, right. So outside of my fascination with the Battle of the Atlantic in the museum, um, that's my World War Two ah, passion. This thirty assault we were, unit. RM commandos in the background as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've got uh, so Royal Marines were were the basically the bodyguards and the muscle for the unit. Yep. So we've got one of those there. And then there's also various caps behind me. Royal Navy original officers one. And then a, a Royal Marines dress cap up there as well. Um, ah, right. Yes, because we talked about T-Force quite recently on the on one of our yeah. livecasts. Actually, yes, that's course, right. Who, of course, uh, got probably entangled with 30AU. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it. Anyway, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the Western approaches. And as James says, we, we I mean, it is a it is a familiar mantra on on the podcast, and I think that reflects a lot of the way that the history's been told, is that the Battle Atlantic is the most important theatre. But obviously, you can't go on a nice holiday in the middle of the Atlantic to look at the battlefield, can you, like you can Normandy or 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 many other um, prominent uh, scenes of battle. So, the, and also, the, the Navy has this sort of trains running on time aspect to it. When the, when the, when the Navy, when things go wrong for the Navy... Then we, we hear all about it. But for a lot of the time, stuff's going right. And the reason it's going right is because largely because of the Western Approaches headquarters that, that your that your um your, your museum is. In fact, it's not it's not a it's not like the Imperial War Museum. It's a bunker with the where the bunker was, isn't it? It's that's that's it. And I think one of the things about the Battle of the Atlantic is I think it's almost as though it's going on in the background when everything else is happening. So when all you when you get the glamour of D-Day and all that happening, the Battle of the Atlantic is something that's just happening in the background. And as you say, it's not until things go wrong that anybody makes any notice of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we don't make any bones about the fact that we think our operations room, which is the original operations room, you're right, we think that's one of the most significant sites in World War II history. Um, yeah. And what went on in I- there is so important so significant but in some ways was so mundane because it was just a lot of admin a lot of organization a lot of data processing um and it but it had to work yeah well dave i mean i've got to say as soon as we were able i I think i I don't want to put words into al's mouth but i think we'd be pretty mustard keen to get our asses up there but but absolutely but, but but Tell us about it. I mean, I know about Derby House, and uh, is this is this underneath it? Where is it? You know, let us have a bit of the history of, of Western Approaches Command, why it's important, why that bunker's built, etc., etc. Yeah, so Western Approaches pre-1939 effectively didn't exist. It had existed during the, the First World War and then was closed down, and it basically was Plymouth Command. 
so it was based down in, in Plymouth, controlled a lot of the, the shipping lanes that were coming in to, through the channel and so on. As we get closer to 1939, it becomes obvious that war is coming and there is already Derby House Exchange Square in Liverpool is being redeveloped. It's an old Victorian building. It's being rebuilt in a really nice 1930s Art Deco style. And the first part of that is Derby House. And Derby House is being reconstructed. And underneath it, they decide to put this underground structure. Now, one of the, the urban myths is that it was meant to be a Masonic temple. Sort of about 1937-38, it becomes obvious, right, we need something. So uh, Churchill, as Lord of the Admiralty, orders that a headquarters be prepared in Liverpool. So we get to the point, 1939, this structure is in place. With the fall of France in 1940, obviously the English Channel is a no-go area for the convoys. Everything has to come around the north coast of Ireland to Liverpool, already the second largest port in effectively the British Empire, is going to become the very heart of the convoy system. So February 41, Plymouth Command, which has already changed its name to Western Approaches Command, moves to Liverpool and moves into this underground bunker uh, in Liverpool. Two floors of underground secret headquarters and then two floors of the building above which were offices and so on and then above that there was offices for the uh, for the GPO. So, Which is really, really important as, as it is for fighter command, isn't it? I mean, the, yeah. the, the part played by the GPO is immense. Wh yeah. Which part of the city is this in then? Because um, uh, 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 I, I sort of know my way around Liverpool, but but not brilliantly. Wh wh where is it? So we are behind the town hall. Right, so, okay. Oh, right, okay, yeah. gosh. So there's a square. Right, so sm smack in the middle of the sort of government governmenty bit yes. of, of, yeah. of the city. Right, okay, the administrative um, part of the t city. Yeah, and one of the, it's also one of the most awkward things for us is because we're out of the main bit of the city and not on the waterfront, obviously we don't get the footfall of visitor numbers, so that's one of the frustrating yeah, yeah. things. But yeah, you're right, right in the heart of the business district. I mean, it's an amazing so, building, isn't it, Derby House? I mean, it, it looks fabulous. It's that classic kind of Art Deco look. But, but you know, I'm guessing if you're standing outside, there is nothing to suggest that underneath is this incredible bunker. And, and actually, I mean, you know, looking at pictures of it, 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 there are obviously a lot of similarities with the bunker at Uxbridge, you know, for 11 Group and, and so on. It's got that same sort of feel, hasn't it? Sort of maps and lots of telephones and the fact that it's underground and so on and well, so forth. Yes. Because you have the you have the, the 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 mat room with the ladder that you know that goes all the way to the top that that's ceiling ceiling height with steps and all this sort of thing that that I mean it you know is ex actually is exactly what you'd picture um, in, in your imagination must must have been that the, the, the I mean it's a chart of course it's not a map if it's nautical isn't it the, it's a uh, uh, I'm gonna never make that mistake around <laughs> sailors it depicts exactly what you'd expect which is which is the the, the the western coast of the European western coast, in effect, and then the American eastern coast, Greenland, Iceland, and so on. Yeah, and um, it's and it's interesting in the fact that um, the the map wall, as we call it, but you're right, it's a chart. The map wall effectively changes as the course of the war generates. So when Derby House, when Western Approaches is opened in February 1941, the map that you see on there is much more concentrated on the eastern Atlantic. Um, right. So it doesn't stretch really as far over as Canada and, and North America. And then as we get through, we think we think it changes about beginning of 1943, um, but we're not certain. But we it then changes to cover the, the whole Atlantic 
um, and be as it is now as we've re recreated it um, back to what it is. And, uh, we were fortunate enough, in fact, that recently we had a visit from the family of the original Liverpool sign writer that had painted the original map. Um, yeah, so they wow. literally they just recruited a local artist sign writer to come in and spend a few days in the bunker painting that map for them. And it's got and it's got the squares all over it and you can plot it. I mean, one of the things that I think is is just so amazing about the Royal Navy in in, in the start of the war and, and throughout the entire war is this control they have, this eyes they have on shipping going on around the world. I mean, you've got the naval control of shipping and the Fesca system and all the rest of it. Uh, and that intelligence, which is a, it's a is a global network, isn't it? You know, the, there's intelligence officers all around the world reporting in shipping movements from all over the globe. And presumably that's all coming into Western House, uh, in, into Western Approaches um, headquarters. It is. Um, so what's happening is we've got all that information, as you say, coming in, most of it from the Admiralty. There were daily conferences with the Operation Intelligence Centre in the Admiralty. They were obviously getting information via Ultra from Bletchley Park. The The actual routes of all the convoys were plotted by the, the movement section in the Trade Division in the Admiralty. But Western Approaches, its main responsibility was the escorts for those convoys. So it, its its priority was the, the safe arrival of the convoys. And that meant obviously issue, you know, putting the ships out there, protecting the convoys and attacking the hunting the U-boats eventually. So they had they had authority to divert convoys as, as necessary. Um, and Western Approaches Command, at its highest point, is the largest naval command in any of the Allied theatres of war. Thousands, there are thousands and thousands of ships come under the Admiral who's in charge of Western Approaches, who for most of the war was, was Sir Max Horton. Um, yeah, but, he, but, but the person who takes, actually takes over command on the 17th of February 1941, 80 years ago, that this podcast goes out is um, Sir Percy Noble, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And before that, you've got Dunbar Smith. So, so how come Noble takes over on this very same day that the bunker opens? So, um, Dunbar Smith is uh, in charge in Plymouth. He moves up, um, and then Percy Noble takes over. Percy Noble's a really nice, uh, old school type naval officer. Sets up. Um, it sort of sounds like it of a name like that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it does. Um, and I've got an image. <laughs> and he was he was really liked by the the staff he knew all the staff by name you know he he looked after his staff and it was a bit of a shock to the system when max horton took over because percy noble in in churchill's eyes just wasn't ruthless enough effectively um so in in november 42 he's moved to washington to become sort of the navy's liaison with the the u.s navy well, but presumably he's very very um well placed to do that because at the time he's in command from February 1941 to 1942, I mean, you know, you've got the US Atlantic Fleet coming in in the middle of 1941, sort of August, September time. Um, so obviously he's already done a lot of liaising with the US Navy. He'll know a lot of the main guys. So you can see why that's quite a good move. I mean, Max Horton's interesting, isn't he? Because he's a submariner and he's absolutely got a reputation before he gets there of, of, of cut and dash and kind of... That's right. I mean, Max Horton... In you the, know, ag in the, aggression. In the First World War, Max Horton is one of the most prolific submarine captains of the British Navy. He's he's the scourge of the German Navy and he operates a lot in the Baltic area. Um, and they have a, you know, they have a certain respect for him, but they have also have a certain fear of him. He is that ruthless. 
And he just brings that with him when he comes to Western Approaches. He had been head of the submarine service in Britain. So he understood what it was to fight in a submarine. So essentially, he's, you know, he's poacher termed gamekeeper. But I can understand why that's quite a smart move. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how popular someone is. You know, there are times in the war where even though people are shocked by by the removal of a senior officer, it's it's probably the right thing to do. And I suppose I'm thinking about about Hugh Dowding being given the chop as commander in chief of fighter command in November 1940, you know, which which has always caused so much outrage, outrage at the time and outrage ever since. But actually, probably I'm was. still I'm still outraged about it. <laughs> no, it was. I the think man, the, the man man wins the battle of Britain and they fire him. Honestly. I'm holding that flame for Hugh Downing no, right there, I, I, You know, I, I, Keith, I get why Keith he was... Park. I, well, Keith Park, I agree. That was a terrible thing with Keith Park, but he has to go because he's so much <laughs> Downing's man. But, but yeah. you know, Downing was... There was no question that by that point he was he was absolutely knackered and was now struggling with a new challenge, which is the kind of, you know, how to... Um, night fighter tactics, you know, with a, mm. with a sort of lack of the right equipment. And it just, you know, sometimes it just does need a sort of change and a, and a fresh pair of eyes and all the rest of it. And I can so see Dave, why Horton would be a, be a good person for that. I mean, he, he does have a, a a reputation as an aggressive tactical commander that's second to none, isn't it? Yeah. So, Dave, you say you knew, he knew all the staffs, Percy Noble. How many people are working in... Um, it, it's known as the Citadel, isn't it, or the Fortress? Yeah, How many so, people are working there? So the strongest, the strongest part, the actual sort of the reinforced bunker that was underground, um, obviously keeping in Navy terms, it was known as the Citadel, um, which yep. is the strongest part of the, the ship, the main control part of the, the ship. Somewhere in the region of 250 to 300 people were working in there. But obviously it was such a sensitive place that... Um, you knew who worked with you in your bit, but you may not know yeah. who else worked in other parts of the bunker. There's something, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it extended to over sort of 55, 60,000 square feet. Um, and it was wow. very limited as to where you go. I met one, we do get, we do occasionally get people come back who obviously worked there. Sadly, there's few and far between now, but I had one lovely lady who came around when I was giving a tour. And at the start of it, um, she came up to me and said, I don't want anybody else to know, but, I used to work here. So there's a mad panic as a tour guide where you realise that you better get everything right <laughs> for that. Um, yeah. but, there's, but there's also that historic story of it in you that goes, right, I must talk to this lady. You know, you're so important. But she was so, so humble. And when I talked to her about what she'd done, she said, Look, I didn't do anything. We just, you know, I was a messenger here. I didn't do anything. My husband was out in the desert fighting in the tanks. He he contributed. We didn't do anything. You know, why do people want to know? And that was just that was just so humbling. But she she'd never been in the operations room in the main map room. In the whole of the time of she worked not. there, she'd never been there. Yeah. And she'd only been she'd only been allowed to the door into that room. And she said to me, said this was as far as I ever got. She said I never had enough gold braid on my arm to get any further how interesting i mean yeah. there's probably whole sections of it she didn't even know were there i mean that, that you know because that's it's that it's that um you know managing people in cells essentially isn't it so there's no there's no crossover and you only know you're only doing the stuff you need to do and you don't need to do anything else so uh, and you don't need to know anything else gosh so oh, because after all i mean one of the things one of the things we talk about very often on the podcast of course is you know that that and this is emblematic of it is that you know, we talk about the tactical, the strategic, and then the operational, which glues the two together. I think we need to talk about the bureaucratic um, element of of the war effort as much because this is this is also like a, a a bureaucratic hub as much as anything else. If you're managing all that shipping and the protecting the shipping 
and the intelligence that goes with it. This is a great big. There's a, there's an awful lot of people with typewriters, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you you notice if you look, when you look at the, the the original photos, and there are quite a few original photos around, and even some film footage of it in operation. Right. It's just a mountain, a mountain of paper. There is just stacks of paper, clipboards, files everywhere. Yeah, every signal had to be copied, every message coming in, every order had to be copied um, from the RAF, from the Navy, from the Merchant Navy, from the Admiralty. All of that is just massed together. Um, but it is, in a way, it's a, it's sort of so typical of the way that Britain can organise things. So all this information is coming in and then you've got a central communications room and all the messages go to there and then they're distributed around the building. Now, obviously, this is pre-computers, pre-digital information. So there's only two ways of doing it. One is you give it to a messenger who walks it around the building and gives it to the right person. That was one of the jobs that the Wrens did. And they also had a pneumatic messaging system, you know, like you see in the old yeah. supermarket um, department stores that used to fire up around. Yeah. They had one of those that would shoot around the building and take messages to various points. So we've got a lovely photo of this, this central communications room with a one Wren relaxing in a leather armchair waiting for a message to be given to her and another one putting <laughs> a message into this pneumatic messaging system. But I think one of, the, one of the important things about Western approaches is 80% of the staff there were, were women. You know, most of these were young girls in the Wrens and the WAFs, most of them under 20 working there, um, doing this job, basically winning the war. And, and the Wrens were definitely the most glamorous, I think, of the, um, of the, of the services for, uh, for women. And it had a cachet, didn't it, I think, that was sort of above and beyond the ATS and yeah. others, and, uh, and even the WAF. Yeah, I mean, you get, you get some ladies who say, you know, they joined for the uniform, it had the smartest uniform. Unquestionably. <laughs> yeah, 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 it did. Well, All I mean, right, you, know, you of, two. Of, All right. <laughs> so okay, my thighs, steady yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We are talking to Dave Roberts about the Western Approaches Museum and the Battle of the Atlantic. Al and I were talking with a with an archaeologist and naval historian the other day called Steve Fisher. We were we were sort of really kind of getting down to just how complex um, the operation was for for Neptune. You know, for for the um, cross channel invasion of Normandy. Shipping is just an incredibly difficult complex thing to carry out isn't it you've got so many different moving parts and you've got the problems of course of you know ports being empty for a bit and then suddenly they've all got to come in you know everyone's got to sort of unload all at once you've got you know what what happens if your escorts are suddenly in in trouble um and you've then got to send out reinforcements you've got to kind of manage those those escorts um, escort groups and all the rest of it. I mean, there's so much to plan and think about, isn't there? There is. And that when you start to look at it like that, you suddenly realise why there had to be such a big organisation and such a, an, an amount of paperwork. And Western Approaches was just a tiny sort of cog in that whole thing because you've got all... You know, Liverpool docks at that time was absolutely ginormous. There were hundreds of docks on either side of the Mersey. There was the shipbuilding over in Camel Laird where they were turning out, you know, a ship every two weeks or whatever. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you've then got in 1940-41, you've got Liverpool being being bombed. The Germans trying to knock out Liverpool as a port, knowing that if they can do that, then they've got a chance of bringing Britain to its knees or at least to the, to the negotiating table. Are its docks expanded during the war? No, so that even prior to the war, Liverpool was um, sort of second only to London in size of, of its port so it was fairly extensive what you find is because of the number of ships that are coming in the whole of the river the estuary almost becomes a bit of a, a dock itself because you've got right they're just stacking it, up either side. Yeah. yeah yeah because you've yeah. got to have some of the escorts are based in some of the docks so for instance walker's group is based in gladstone dock in mm. bootle which is just to the north of liverpool center a little bit but of course you've got at times, you've got like 60-odd merchant ships. And then, most, to be fair, most of the escorts were based in Northern Ireland around Londonderry. And they would pick up the, the convoys as they went past and meet them off the coast to head out. The other issue you've got early on is that the, none of the escorts have enough fuel to do a transatlantic journey. So, so they've got to meet halfway, haven't they, and swap over? Yeah, or refu- disappear, refuel at Iceland or Newfoundland and then rejoin. The thing looking at the, the map and sort of imagining what this must be like is very often you... You you must the, the the extent to which you're watching this unfold sort of in slow motion the battle at the Atlantic, that 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 the disaster must also appear to unfold in slow motion on that map. If a successful 
U-boat attack goes in. That there's a you know that 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 there's only so much you can tr- can control within the moment, isn't there? Yeah. It's not like one of these fighter control stations. You know, the, I've been to the one at Duxford. You know where where. You know, you 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 scramble some aircraft, and you you a reasonable chance of them intercepting some Luftwaffe within quarter of an hour, even you know, or or twenty minutes. But this is this is all a much more, and that that you're able to control this. I mean, it's a testament to how you, you you've got the obviously this great mountain of um, information coming at you all the time, and then being able to process it and assess it and figure it all out, and then make decisions that that work on a battle on a on this sort of strange slow motion battlefield it's quite extraordinary i mean the, have you have, have, is it like bletchley park where they've picked lots of clever people to to do this or is it a naval thing where the navy of the navy have trained their people because after because you know we talked about bletchley park and medmanham as well where basically they're running a sort of collegiate style and uh you know, Bletchley Park's got people who work to the music hall in it and crossword, people who do crosswords and crazy mathematicians and, and you know, and GPO engineers and all that sort of thing. Is this like Navy, Navy, Navy and the, and the Navy are going at it their way only? I think so. I think if you look at the Operations Intelligence Centre in the Admiralty, where most of the information is coming from, because although a lot of ultra information was making its way to Western approaches, because yep. of the, you know, the need-to-know basis, most staff there certainly below i would say the commander-in-chief and his chief of staff probably didn't know the ultra you know they weren't indoctrinated into that so they had no idea of that but what you find yeah. is that a lot of the wrens that are recruited and sent to to derby house and western approaches are you know intelligent girls they're, they're mathematicians yeah. and those are right. the ones that that make their way into you know the the decoding but also into um watu the western approaches training unit which effectively you've got the Wrens, these 19, 20 year old girls training um, the naval commanders that are going to be out in the Atlantic. Wow. Um, so Gilbert Roberts sets up this. Yeah. So Gilbert Robert, Roberts sets up this training school um, in Watu. During Prior to the war, he'd been a re- semi-retired naval officer. He hadn't really done much in his Navy career. Comes up with this idea of a training school, creates a game effectively which is played out on the floor of a top room in exchange flags and it's staffed by Wrens and sort of one senior petty officer from the from the men's Royal Navy and they train every allied naval commander who's going to be in the Atlantic and devise the tactics um, that are used out there to, to effectively hunt the U-boats and famously Max Horton when he comes in goes to Gilbert Roberts and says right what is this game you know how's it going to benefit us what's it doing so Gilbert Roberts says yeah come along you know have a go try it out Max Horton says right but I'm going to command a U-boat you know I will try and sink he gets sunk three times uh, <laughs> and no one has no one has the nerve to tell him that it's actually by sort of a 19 year old Wren who's sat in another room but that was how the, amazing yeah and that's that's an amazing story it, you know it is a a fascinating thing and it's one of those that again had a lot to do with winning the battle but is so missed when we look at the battle of the atlantic Gosh. yeah it's an it's the most ama- it's an amazing story i mean it so, so the bunker comes into being on the 17th of february 1941 yeah. of course the, the blitz has still got kind of you know almost exactly three months still to run 
And Liverpool still got its kind of worst of its bombing to come as well, I, I think, if I remember rightly. You know, wh- where where are we at in the Battle of the Atlantic? So we've had the lucky, the the happy time for the U-boat crews in the su- late summer of 1940, where a lot of the convoys are going across the Atlantic un- unescorted because of the invasion threat. So much of the home fleet and Western forces, Western approaches forces are down in, down in the um, southeast of England. Uh, waiting for an invasion that's not going to happen. And so U-boats are able to kind of sink large numbers. I mean, what's really interesting, though, is that there's never more than, I think it's over 13 or 14 U-boats operating at one time in the Atlantic in the whole of 1940. And by January 1941, there's only six. Uh, And when Percy Noble takes over in mid-February 1941, we're at this really, really pivotal moment because ahead of us lies March, April and May 1941, which are absolutely key, key, key months in the Battle of the Atlantic because... Three of the biggest aces are lost or killed, um, Shetka, yep. Kretschmer and, and Preen, um, plus uh, a Nigma machine and codes is captured, plus the Bismarck is sunk. Um, uh, and the uh, and the uh, and the Kriegsmarine's surface fleet basically sort of scuttles off to port, barely ever to sort of venture out into the oceans again throughout the rest of the war. So it's a really, really key moment, and um, and I've argued that, that the Battle of the Atlantic reached a point where it's not going to be lost by the end of May 1941. You know, obviously there's a lot of hard fighting still to go, and it's not until May 1943 that the Battle of the Atlantic is really, you know, that the, the Dernitz, the commander of the U-boat force, pulls back his wolf packs out of the Atlantic and sort of concedes defeat. But I think they do get to a point where they're not going to lose, and... At this crucial moment in the sort of spring first half of 1941, that is exactly when this operation room is coming in. These operation rooms are coming into being. This is exactly when Percy Noble's taking over, and it's sort of proof, if everyone, if ever was needed, of the importance it plays. I mean, you know, we, Alan, I've said time and again that the Atlantic is the most important theatre of war because, of course, every bit of shipping that is needed in Britain, which is then needed to cross the Channel and all the rest of it, is all coming through the Atlantic, whether it's coming from Australia, whether it's coming from the United States, whether it's coming from oil from Venezuela, wherever it's coming from, it all has to come into Liverpool and wherever from from the Atlantic. So, you know, cut that off. You've got no war effort. It's just as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's not just about the 70% of food that Britain needs to be bringing in by, by sea, but it's it's all the, the oil, the equipment, the raw materials, and then the troops from Canada initially and the rest of the empire, and then you've got the Americans. Millions of American troops come in through, through the Western ports in, in, you know, after their entry in sort of January 1942. And all of those have got to be protected. The- I mean, this is co- this this shipping is complex enough without U boats. I mean, this is this is the, uh, uh, you know when when James says, "Oh, it's one by one by nineteen forty one." There's a lot of hard work to be done. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there is an awful lot of hard Un- work understatement to be done. of a century. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, that that really needs qualifying, doesn't it? Because because uh, as you say, the systems are all coming online at the point where the battle's turning, but it's. Uh, you need a thing as big and complex and well integrated and well thought out as this just to run the shipping, really, don't you? Yeah. Because after all, convoys present their own challenges, don't they? Because normal shipping, a ship sails when it wants to or when it needs to. Um, and you don't have, you know, 30 ships turning up all at once um, in, in normal shipping circumstances, do you? So, ju- so just organising that alone and yeah. the... And the, the, the you know, and and so on. The the, the yeah. complications. And, 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 and very often, there there's more than forty in a, a transatlantic yeah, yeah, convoy. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. The complications of this kind of shipping are, are, are immense anyway. And then you've got to deal with the fact that all these ships are effectively independent. You don't really have you know, any control over them. Some of them are, are not even British. They're Norwegian, they're Panamanian, they're Brazilian, they're American. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a really got, good point. You've got a whole mix of, of people in there. And again, one of the forgotten services is those men and women of the Merchant Navy that staffed these crewed yeah, these ships um, yeah. and in up until I think it's 41 up until then if they lost you know if your ship's torpedoed if your ship sinks that's it your pay stops until you join another ship um, right because yeah, effectively yeah. <laughs> you know um, well mate you should course. have got sunk should you I mean yeah, <laughs> yeah, what do you expect yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. So, um, in your, if you, I mean, if, if people go to your website in the gallery that the, the of photographs, there's an office, isn't there, that overlooks the map room? Yeah. Um, uh, who's it? Who's sat in there? So, are there a series of offices offices overlooking the map room? It's got a curtain. I mean, this is. I mean, you know, this is. Uh, this is. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have been to the Churchill War Rooms, have been to that bunker, and 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 you know, you're, I'm struck, always struck by several things there, which is that it's obviously not purpose built. It's obviously it's sort of it's it's sprawled into itself. You know, they've got a map of the world running the Second World War in it, and it's not that it's not that big. Whereas what seems here is you've you've got a proper sized. This is this is your proper underground um, bunker uh, world domination lair. This this place. So there are other are, are there a series? Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, are there a series of offices offices overlooking the map room and people people in conference in those rooms? I mean, the other thing that the other thing that 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 um that uh, when someone visits they won't get is this place would have been thick with tobacco smoke, wouldn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, everyone smoking yeah. pipes on, fags on, not ventilated. People doing great long shifts. Brimful ashtrays and all that sort of thing. I mean, the, the atmosphere, the hustle and the bustle. And so, so are there a series of offices overlooking the map room and people in conference? And how's it? How's that running in in there? Yeah. So you've got the operations room, which is the main map room, and, yep. and for what we know, um, that were that had to be quite a quiet area. So there are you, you will see some typewriters and so on in there, but that was that was a quiet working room. It the maps updated every four hours unless there's an emergency. Behind the map wall, there's another extent of rooms that was the convoy plotting room. So that's where there was another sort of table map with the convoys plotted on there. But overlooking the map, you had two offices. The one that's on the the photos that we've got is, yep. that's the Admiral's office. That's the Commander-in-Chief's office. He can sit there at his desk. He can look out of the window. He can see everything on that map wall. He's got a speaking tube, the old you know ship-type speaking tube behind him, so he can shout his orders straight down to his senior duty captains below him in a little box. Um, and he's got a, a bedroom there as well. So off right. behind there is a, is a little sleeping quarters. And we know that Max Horton spent a lot of time sleeping there rather than his more plush apartments that he had um, elsewhere because he wanted to be so close to the action. And to the run other, it like a ship, in, yeah. a, in effect. Yeah, right. so you, you know, you've got a captain's bunk there. Um, and one of the one of the things about you're right about the atmosphere, and we try and get that across to people when when they come, because at the moment, you know, when you come, even if we're we're busy, it can be quite a, it can feel quite quiet and quite empty because of the extent of it and how it's done with the narrow corridors and the lots of different rooms, and it has at times quite an eerie feeling. But it would have been quite busy. It would have been bustling. It would have been hot. It would have been stuffy. You're right. It would have been smoky. Yeah. One of the wrens tells tells us that you know her. Her abiding memory of the smell of it was the smell of wet dog because of the wet woolen uniforms. So you'd have these damp uniforms, and that was her abiding 
memory of that. So we try and get that that across to people. But it's yeah, it's it's a fascinating place in that in that it is still very atmospheric. You know, although we've done a lot of renovation to the operations room, there are parts of it that still you walk down that corridor and very little has changed since. The doors were closed in 1945. And just one, one last thing I'd, I'd love to ask you about is about sort of um, cooperation with the RF, because obviously increasingly as the war goes on, you know, the Battle of Atlantic is won by naval forces and, and by the, you know, the courage of the merchant shipping keeping going, but but also by closing the air gap. And, yeah. and that's Coastal Command as well as US Air Forces and, and Royal Canadian Air Forces as well. So how closely is... Um, Western Approaches Command here um, at Derby House. How, how how closely are they working with the RAF, and does the RAF well, well, have its own little cubbyhole down here? Well, yes, yes in particular, in, in particular, in contrast with the Army, who after all take take um, several years to figure out that you know maybe what they need to do is be cheek by jowl with the RAF. I mean, is, is this the thing that happens? Oh, this from is the start? yeah. This is right from February 1941. Fifteen group of Coastal Command are embedded in the Western Approaches, and they literally have. So if you if you stand with your back to the map wall and you look across, there's what's known as the choir stalls, where's this double-sided, low-glass cabins where you've got, on the left-hand side, you've got the Royal Navy, the right-hand side, you've got the RAF, and then above them, you've got the Commander-in-Chief, the Royal Navy, and then you've got the Commander of 15 Group in his office looking out. So they were literally working side by side. Um, and the fascinating thing about the you know coastal command and the aircraft and the Royal Canadian Air Force and all that is they are so successful at sinking U-boats almost more successful than than any of the navies are you know it's that bizarre thing that it's easier to sink a submarine with an airplane than it is with a ship yeah because you could, we were talking about you just can, the other day weren't we because you can see because you can because you because you can see the darn things yeah exactly because <laughs> yeah. they're not very often underwater actually all no. that far underwater no and you, uh, could, <laughs> you you know you can come up on them very quickly catch them by surprise on the surface and then that's it well if there's any one command in in the RAF that that's undersold in its in its story it's coastal command so you know it's fantastic that that's represented here as well so dave when you know i mean we're all just desperately hoping that that people can come and visit this and it'll all reopen and we'll all be fine just as soon as possible and um but but tell me one other thing have you, have you got archives there as well what happened is that from 1945 to about to 1993 we know very little of what happened with the bunker we've got various stories that it was still kept as the Na- navy sort of training base but we know very little so in 1993 the museum's opened on the 50th anniversary of the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, but then in the last sort of five years, it fell into neglect. Nobody was coming to it anymore. It was dusty. It was dirty. It was downhill. We took over. And now we're trying to build up, you know, we're trying to renovate it, take it back to what it was. But we're also trying to build up an archive um, of what it what it was. Um, our latest project, lockdown's been really good to us in the fact that we've been able to, one, keep going. But two, we've been able to do a huge amount of renovation work, research, and our next big project is a museum dedicated to the Wrens, which will be situated in, in some of the rooms that we've managed to open up during lockdown that haven't been used Brilliant. since 1945. Um, and that, Amazing. Yeah, so that's, that, that Wrens Museum you know, won't just focus on World War II. It'll tell the whole story of the Wrens. Um, but that's, that's our latest edition, and I think that's a really important story that he's telling. So are you in the business for, um, for family memoirs and... and- people who find stuff in the attic when they're clearing stuff definitely out. definitely anything connected with western approaches with the battle of the atlantic with with, with liverpool you know we'll we'll consider what 
like most museums, we're limited on space for archives. Um, but you know, we we thrive on those personal stories. That's what we love is getting those personal stories of of people who, like I said about the painter's family who came and you know um, and visited us. We've had friends who work there who've come back and given us their stories and donated items to the museum. So yeah, anybody who's got a connection or thinks, oh yeah, I'm sure my you know my mother or my grandmother said something about working there. Um, yeah, please get in touch with us definitely. Well, I can't. I don't know about you, I can't wait to go and look at it. I, I think it just looks absolutely completely brilliant. It really yeah, does look I mean, it, it it really really does. And we chastise ourselves all the time about our lack of focus on the battle at the Atlantic. And it would be good to. But it'd be good to do something unambiguously battle at the Atlantic for, yeah, for once, yeah, yeah. wouldn't it, Jim? Definitely, yeah, absolutely would. Well, well, thank you, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, like I say, once we've all had our jabs and everything's back to as near normal as damn it, we will come, come and, and see, see you us. and uh, and uh, we'll come and hang out. And um, uh, I might, you know, can I have a kip in the Admiral's cot? That's all <laughs> I ask. Definitely. <laughs> be, be Definitely. At, at one with you can Matt have a sleepover. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Fantastic. now you're talking. Um, but um, happy anniversary, Dave. You know this is yeah, the thank you very anniversary much, guys. of his opening. So, um, so yeah, you know, and keep up the good work. And thank you so much for having us on, guys. It's really been a pleasure. Total pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye.